It's the Victorian Variety Show. When Walter told him what was really the matter, Captain Cuddle, after a moment's reflection, started up into full activity. He emptied out of a little tin canister on the top shelf of the cupboard his whole stock of ready money, amounting to 13 pounds and half a crown, which he transferred to one of the pockets of his square blue coat, further enriched that repository with the contents of his plate chest, consisting of two withered atomies of teaspoons and an obsolete pair of knock-kneed sugar tongs, pulled up his immense double-cased silver watch from the depths in which it reposed to assure himself that that valuable was sound and whole, reattached the hook to his right wrist, and seizing the stick covered over with knobs, bade Walter come along. Welcome to the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I talk about a wide variety of topics that usually aren't examined or even addressed in media or academic representations of life during the Victorian era. Although this show is categorized as a quote-unquote history podcast on most of the platforms, and for the most part, I take an historical approach because I don't believe trends or events happen in a vacuum, and it's important to consider what led up to them as well as what came afterward, I really consider this show to be more, you might say, interdisciplinary, because I also look at things like art and literary criticism, as well as literature from the Victorian era. As I did in my last episode, in which I read two lesser-known poems from Edgar Allan Poe that are in the public domain, and as I did at the top of this show. My name is Marissa. And the quote I just read, which is taken from Dombey and Son, an 1846 novel by Charles Dickens, gives us a glimpse of Captain Edward, or Ned, Cuddle, a retired sea captain with a hook for a hand. As I'll discuss in more detail shortly, characters with prosthetic limbs like hooks and wooden legs appeared in a number of works by Dickens and other writers of the period. And I've wanted to discuss this topic for some time, in part because I'm interested in how individuals with disabilities have been portrayed in literature and the media. Although, I want to emphasize before I go any further that based on my research, not all amputees consider themselves disabled. Everyone's experience is different, and it's not only incorrect, but also dangerous for us to assume that everyone who shares a similar characteristic automatically sees themselves in a similar way or faces the same challenges. But unfortunately, a lot of quote-unquote othering tends to happen on the part of individuals who haven't had to face these challenges, which is why I think it's so important to focus on topics like this one. One thing that I do want to point out is that I kind of switch back and forth between the evolution of prosthetic limbs from the UK to the US to back to the UK again, and I apologize for that. But although the articles that I looked at didn't exactly tie what was going on on both sides of the pond together, I think this is one of those instances where 
what was happening in one country during this time was relevant or at least similar to what was happening in the other. So according to Merriam-Webster, a prosthesis is, quote, an artificial device to replace or augment a missing or impaired part of the body, end quote. I like that definition because it suggests that the category of prosthetic devices is much broader than we normally think of when we hear about them. In addition to limbs, devices like glass eyes, pacemakers, hearing aids, artificial breasts that some breast cancer patients get after mastectomies, and even eyeglasses can fall under the umbrella of prostheses. Granted, a number of these devices didn't exist yet during the Victorian era, and prosthetic limbs, which will be my primary focus in this episode, are often more visible than, say, an implant or a pacemaker. But I think that when we think about prosthetics in this way, we see that we can never really be sure of who's wearing a prosthetic, and that if we don't already, a large percentage of us will probably need to use some type of prosthetic device at some point in the future. Prosthetic body parts were not a new concept during the Victorian era. In an article called 10 Ancient Prosthetics, Abraham Rehnquist lists examples of prosthetic devices from ancient times, like the so-called Cairo toe that's dated back to sometime between 950 and 710 BCE, and the bronze Capua leg that was discovered in a Roman tomb in the early 20th century, but has been dated back to 300 BCE. However, as with other phenomena I've discussed in previous episodes, the demand for prosthetics increased over time, and the way they were designed and produced changed in a big way in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, due on the one hand to armed conflicts like the Napoleonic Wars, and on the other to the Industrial Revolution, during which the number of amputations increased due to workers getting body parts caught in machinery and things like that. Unfortunately, many of these workers died. As I discussed in my episode on Victorian era surgery earlier this year, until the late 19th century, most amputations were performed without anesthesia by surgeons who didn't want to bother with minor inconveniences like washing their hands or using sanitized instruments. Of course, I'm being sarcastic there. I don't think those are minor things at all. So a large percentage of patients perish due to shock or the high risk of infection. As for working class amputees who survived, options were limited. As Julia Armfield tells us in Without a Leg to Stand On, Victorian Prosthetics, wealthy amputees could choose from artificial legs that were made of higher quality materials and offered a wider range of movement such as the Anglesey leg, which was named after Henry Paget, Marcus of Anglesey, who lost his right leg during the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 and featured a wooden calf connected to a thigh socket by a steel knee joint and a flexible foot, or so-called cork legs, which were manufactured on Cork Street in London's West End, hence the name, 
and featured ivory balls and ankles with rubber sockets. However, most working-class amputees during this time could afford, at best, crutches or rudimentary wooden peg legs that split easily and were prone to rotting. As for artificial arms, in another article I looked at by Armfield called Armed and Dangerous, Victorian Prosthetics, Part 2, in the early 19th century, the options more or less came down to appearance versus practicality, with wealthy amputees choosing the former and those from the working class really having no choice but the latter option. According to Armfield, professionally manufactured, higher-end models, quote, whilst easier on the eye, were more expensive and offered complicated methods of grabbing and flexing, movements essential to practical work, end quote. Whereas a hook that could be fitted by a blacksmith was not only more affordable, but made it easier for amputees to grab what they needed while on the job. This is not to say that designers of higher-end models didn't care about greater mobility. Around 1850, an artificial arm made of brass and steel and an upper arm piece made of leather, which had movable finger joints that allowed for rotation and up and down motions, made its debut. Now on display in the London Science Museum, in Victorian rather sinister artificial arm and hand, Corey Doctorow notes that despite its increased mobility, the Victorian arm's appearance, with its pointy, skeletal-looking fingers, quote, suggests the wearer may have disguised it with a glove, end quote. The demand for prosthetics continued to increase during the 19th century, perhaps most dramatically during the 1860s, due to the U.S. Civil War. In the Civil War and the birth of the U.S. prosthetics industry, Michael McRae identifies, quote, deadlier bullets and government money, end quote, as the primary reasons for progress in the field of prosthetic limbs during this time. One of these so-called deadlier bullets, specifically the Mini-A or Mini, caused large irregular wounds that were prone to infection which most physicians didn't have the knowledge or resources, such as antibiotics for infection, which were still several decades off, to deal with. And to make matters worse, injuries like these were occurring on a large scale. According to Robert Gailey, a professor and researcher at the University of Miami School of Medicine who is cited in McRae's article, over 70,000 soldiers total, at least 30,000 on the Union side and 40,000 on the Confederate side, lost limbs between 1861 and 1865. An amputation, which McRae tells us had a mortality rate of, quote, only, end quote, 28%, became the safest and fastest treatment method. As a result, under what was known as the Great Civil War Benefaction, the U.S. government made a commitment to supply prosthetic limbs to all veterans who'd undergone amputations. Some significant advances were made in the field of prosthetics during this time, such as the cosmetic rubber hand, which first appeared in 1863 and was more natural looking than the aforementioned Victorian arm. 
It appears that rubber hands allowed for a limited mobility, allowing its wearers to hold small objects, which leads me to suspect that the choice between appearance and practicality remained an issue. But McRae suggests that some rubber hand models were designed to be easily detached and replaced with hooks or other tools when needed. So although some innovations were made in the field of prosthetic devices during the Civil War era, McRae suggests that many entrepreneurs during this time focused most of their energy on competing with each other for government funding rather than on creating high quality products. So a lot of artificial limbs were marketed in advertisements as being more comfortable and useful than they actually were. Not surprisingly, a lot of vets, you know, the ones who actually had to wear these limbs, were dissatisfied with the quality of the prostheses available to them. And ultimately, one of the most successful entrepreneurs to benefit from the U.S. government's commitment was himself a dissatisfied war vet, James Edward Hanger, a Confederate soldier who, McRae notes, was the war's quote-unquote first documented amputee. After losing his left leg, which was struck by a cannonball, Hanger was fitted with a wooden peg leg that he found uncomfortable and not very useful. So he went on to create a lightweight leg from whittled barrel staves with hinges at the knee and ankle and tendons fashioned from rubber rather than catgut, which had previously been the standard. According to Wikipedia, Catgut is a type of cord that's made from natural fibers that are taken from the walls of animal intestines, not cats. Sheep or goat intestines are most commonly used, followed by cattle, donkeys and horses, and hogs, and is commonly used in items like tennis rackets and stringed instruments. After patenting his leg in 1871 and receiving a commission to manufacture limbs for other vets, Hanger founded Hanger Inc., which is still in existence today. Now known as the Hanger Clinic, according to the company website, it's, quote, the nation's leading prosthetic care provider, end quote. So we can see that the Civil War was a turning point for the prosthetics industry, even though, as Hunter Oatman Stanford explains in War and Prosthetics, how veterans fought for the perfect artificial limb, the more top-of-the-line models carried price tags that rendered them inaccessible to many amputees until well into the 20th century. Regardless of whether we're talking about a hanger leg or a hook, however, and regardless of whether an amputee lost a limb in combat or in an industrial, farming, or even road accident, we can see many amputees seeking to live out their lives in as self-sufficient a manner as possible and wearing prosthetics as a means to help them do just that. Again, each amputee's experience is unique, so I don't want to generalize. But the fact that some covered their prostheses with gloves or art articles of clothing suggests that they may not have wanted to stand out, which is very likely because humans are quick to notice differences and make judgments, and when it comes to anything that might be seen as a disability, the non-disabled can be quite nosy, even when the disabled person goes out of their way not to draw attention to themselves. 
So it's not surprising that some writers of the Victorian era, among others, featured wearers of prostheses in their works. In Artificial Leg, Vanessa Warren cites examples of poems such as one called Wooden Legs, in which a boy wonders what would happen if men refused to fight because they were afraid they'd wind up with wooden legs, and the Ballad of the Cork Leg, which I found online and I'll post a link to in the show notes, along with all of the other sources that I looked at for this episode. But anyway, the Ballad of the Cork Leg basically tells the story of a prosthetic leg running amok. Another example that you may be more familiar with is from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. If you were to do a Google search, as I did, you could find a bunch of articles pondering the meaning of Ahab's prosthetic leg. Looking at these examples, you can see that writers use prosthetic devices as metaphors for things like fear, whether it's of war or a quote-unquote other, or to symbolize something that's missing, for example, a gap that needs to be filled or a missed opportunity, and hopefully you can see why representations like these can be problematic. In addition to fear of an other, Metaphors like these run the risk of taking the humanity out of characters who wear prostheses. And then there's Dickens, who, based on my research, seems especially notable in his inclusion of characters who wear prostheses. In Dickens' Wag and Wooden Legs, Adrienne E. Gavin suggests that Dickens' interest in wooden legs very likely began in his childhood. In Portsmouth, England, where he lived until the age of three, road accidents which resulted in victims needing amputations after their limbs were crushed by wagon wheels were common. And many sailors and other military men with wooden legs lived or spent time recovering in hospitals in Chatham, a naval port in which Dickens lived until he was 10. In addition, while Dickens was living in London as an adolescent, one of his uncles broke his leg and eventually needed to have it amputated. As Gavin describes him, Dickens was fascinated not just with prosthetic devices themselves, but also with the absence of flesh and blood limbs that non-amputees probably take for granted, and possibly also by the amputation process itself. Another thing that I mentioned in my episode on Victorian surgery was that these operations were often conducted in crowded, noisy operating theaters. And although some of the unanesthetized un patients may have been in too much pain to fully understand what was going on around them, others were probably well aware of the fact that not only were they on display, but that the crowds surrounding them might witness them perishing on the filthy operating table. In particular, however, Gavin suggests that Dickens saw a number of comic possibilities in wooden legs, citing as one example the Pickwick Papers, in which a character who, as a hardcore drinker, wore secondhand legs that broke easily, was able to buy new legs which lasted, quote, twice as long as the others used to do. Andy attributes this solely to his temperate habits, end quote. Another example can be seen in Dickens' novel, Martin Chuzzlewit, 
in which Mrs. Gamp tells of her late husband, who had a wooden leg, instructing his son to sell the leg and use the money to buy liquor. Again, hopefully you can see how using prostheses for comedic effect can be problematic, not only because of what it reduces characters to, but also of what it says about them. Citing Silas Wigg from Our Mutual Friend as an example, Warren argues that Dickens' portrayals of characters with wooden legs, quote, repeatedly associate prostheses with ignorance, intemperance, and greed, end quote. Now, I want to stress here that I still believe Dickens is a major writer whose works still should be widely read. And I feel singling him out wouldn't be entirely fair because so many other writers, as well as filmmakers and other artists, have given us problematic representations of people with prostheses or disabilities in general since the Victorian period. Not only in books, but also in movies and other media. I can think of a few that I've seen or heard about in recent years. But I do think that because Dickens is such an important writer, it's extremely important to approach this aspect of his work with a critical eye, rather than to dismiss it because, you know, a lot of people felt this way at the time. I've heard that about artists before, and I, I don't buy that. Something along those lines. I think we do need to approach this aspect of his work with a critical eye, rather than just saying, oh, that's the way everybody felt at the time or something like that. And on that note, I would love to know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Victorian Variety One, especially since I've been posting from there on a more regular basis. I'm not one of those people who's constantly updating my social media accounts. Honestly, I don't know how they do it. But I try to post things from the podcast Twitter account that you'll find interesting if you're a fan of Victorian era history, regardless of whether it's connected to a recent episode. Although if it's on a topic I haven't covered yet, you never know. I may talk about it at some point in the future. So yeah please follow me on Twitter if you don't already. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave a tip if you're listening to this on the Good Pods app. And finally, if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening, I would greatly appreciate it because it helps the show reach more listeners. And to everyone who's been rating this show, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. What I want to start doing is giving a shout out to one of my awesome listeners in each episode. And this week, I want to give a shout out to Danny Frankenstein, who gave me my first review on Apple Podcasts. And it's really a wonderful one. Danny, I am so glad you like my show, and I truly appreciate your encouragement and feedback. So yeah, I'm going to make my shout-outs a regular thing each week. And I want to thank everyone who's made it to the end of this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. 
But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a quote from the Vanessa Warren article that emphasizes the importance of looking at this topic and the need for a history of the Victorian era that includes disabled people, which I couldn't agree with more. Simultaneously material and symbolic, artificial legs are artifacts of a culture and its views on class, industry, technology, and disability. But they are also artifacts of the daily lives of disabled Victorians. They remind us that bodies were literally shaped and reshaped by the material world they occupied. As such, they underscore the need for a history of the Victorian era that includes the material lives of disabled people and addresses their experiences of both bodily difference and prosthetic compensation. <laughs>